The following is an audio recording of Professor Lisa Grumbach's address to the Domestic Dharma Symposium, Nuns at Home, Nuns as Home Builders, Rethinking Ordination and Family in Medieval Japan, delivered at the Institute of Buddhist Studies on September 22, 2012. For a video of this talk, please visit podcast.shin-ibs.edu. presentation, I'd like to uh, look at the history of Buddhism, at least in, in Japan, uh, for what it can teach us about a family practice. And uh, I think, or I hope we will perhaps see some resonances with what uh, modern day practitioners in the United States or other places are doing. So, uh, and uh, that could be a topic for our conversation later on in the afternoon as well. So let me begin. Uh, I'd like to begin today with a story of a nun and a monk, uh, neither of whom fit our traditional notions of what a monk or a nun should be. And the story begins. Uh, uh, in Saga lived a preacher named No Setsubo, who was a monk of considerable eloquence. His neighbor was a prosperous nun who ran a wine shop. No Setsubo, being very fond of spirits, spent all of his donations on it. <laughs> On one occasion, having run up a bill, Nosetsubo presented her with a donation which he had received. Then, since the nun had a Buddhist service to be performed, she invited Nosetsubo to be the celebrant. The people in the neighborhood got wind of the matter and spoke to the preacher. This good nun sells fine wine, they told him. But there is only one problem. She has no qualms about cutting it with water. In today's sermon, please dwell on the wickedness of selling watered-down wine. It is, it is for our benefit as well as yours. No sensible replied, even before you called this to my attention, I have been aware of the problem, and it has troubled me of late. I will speak my mind on the matter. So his, for his explanation of the scriptural reading, Nosetsubo gave a merely cursory outline. Then he called to mind all he could about the evils, evils of adulterating wine, relating them in detail, and even making up a few things that were not true. <laughs> After the sermon, the nun filled up a large tub of wine, inviting everyone to help himself. Nosetsubo, at the urging of the congregation, took the first cupful and drank it down. How shameful of me, the nun was saying. I didn't realize it was a sin to add water to wine. And everyone was thinking to himself how fine it would be that day, since it was good wine even when she added some water. <laughs> Nosetsubo took a drink. Ah! exclaimed Nosetsubo. People wondered in anticipation how delicious it must be. See how he's, he's enjoying himself, they said. Nosetsubo remarked. Lately, you have been serving wine flavored with a little water, but this is water flavored with a little wine. <laughs> so it is, replied the nun. Since I heard you say that it was wrong to add water to wine, I have added wine to water. Indeed, filling a large pail with water, she had merely added a small pot full of spirits. Did she do it out of fun, or was her thinking warped? And that's the story. So this story is found in a collection of observances and anecdotes penned by the famous medieval monk Muju Ichien during the years 1279 to 1283. In assembling this collection, Muju states of his purpose, with a flair typical of medieval Japanese writers, 
I wish to bring people into the marvelous way of the Buddha's teaching and with unpretentious examples taken from the common ordinary affairs of life, I should like to illustrate the profound significance of this splendid doctrine. So I rouse myself from the drowsiness of, uh, drowsiness of old age and with an idle hand have assembled at random that which I have seen and heard. According to this statement and the stories in this collection entitled Sand and Pebbles, from the humble and ordinary substances of sand and pebbles, the people of the world extract gold and jewels, these stories are to be taken at face value as having actually occurred. Certainly many of the episodes in Sand and Pebbles comment on ideas, events, and personages from the time period. But whether this particular story of the wine-selling nun and the wine-drinking monk should be taken as a factual retelling of events or simply as a humorous anecdote, as a joke, I think we cannot be quite sure. Regardless of its facticity, however, the story is very revealing for what the author says and does not say regarding this monk and nun. First, obviously, we have a wine-selling nun and a wine-drinking monk. One would think that this would cause some raised eyebrows. Yet nowhere in the story does Muju, as the author, or anyone within the tale, suggest that this is, a that this is scandalous or even out of the ordinary. The wine-drinking monk, Nosetsubo, is known for his eloquence and seems to be respected by the townspeople. They turn to him to help solve the problem with the nun. And when it comes, to and when it comes time to drink, they urge him to be the first. The nun, in turn, is called the good nun, and the townspeople patronize her shop without hesitation. Furthermore, Muju appends his own commentarial note to the story, explaining what we are to learn from it. So what is the, what is the moral that Muju wants us to take away from this story of the wine-selling nun. But the note says nothing about the behaviors of the nun or the monk. It focuses instead on the problem of misunderstanding or twisting words. Muju says, so too in Buddhism, when words are wrongly, mis are, are wrongly understood, heresy arises. And then he goes on to criticize the Tachikawa sect of Buddhism, which Muju believes twists the words of the sutras in order to condone their use of sexual practices as a way to enlightenment. So the issue in the story of the nun then is not that she sells wine, but that she misconstrues the intent of the sermon. What are we to make of this story for our purposes today? Were wine selling nuns uh, part of the unpretentious and ordinary setting of life in medieval Japan? I have no doubt that wine drinking monks were. We have lots of stories of them. The story seems to assume that a nun who sells wine in itself presents no need for censure. And that is what is remarkable. A wine-selling nun is unremarkable. In, in medieval Japan, women who were, who were nuns ran wine shops and presumably operated other types of businesses. The image of nuns and all ordained clergy that is generally found in academic treatments of Buddhism is of women who have removed themselves from home life and society who live more or less cloistered lives. With this presentation today then, I would like to revise our view of nuns in the history of Buddhism. In particular, our view of nuns as people who have left home needs to be reconsidered if we are to understand the lives of the women who became nuns and their motivations for becoming nuns. The examples I will describe today show that women did not necessarily see themselves as leaving their homes when they became nuns, that their motivations and their practices often focused around their families, and that the temple was for them their home, not removed from family concerns, but part and parcel of family life. 
My remarks today will mainly draw on material from pre-modern Japan, but there are also resonances and overlaps with other geographical areas that I will occasionally reference as well. So let me start by talking about the temple as home. So temple as home instead of apart from home. So to begin our discussion of nuns and family life then, I would like to introduce the concept that the temple is equivalent to a home. Now I mean this quite literally, that a temple is a place where a family lives. I do not mean it metaphorically, that a temple is like a home for the monks or nuns who live there. Here let me provide some examples in which the temple is the actual home of the people who founded it. So the first example that I'd like to talk about is a place called Zenkoji, which is no located up in Nagano Prefecture in Japan. Perhaps some of you have been there if you've had a chance to go to Japan. It's quite famous. So the first example is Zenkoji, one of the earliest temples to be founded in Japan. Its origins are somewhat obscure, but archaeological evidence tells us that there was a temple structure very close to the current location as early as the 1770s, uh, as early as the 770s, I'm sorry, so the, the 8th century. Uh, let's see. Uh, there are many interesting things about this temple and its history, but pertinent to our topic today, the temple's founding story relates that the temple was first created within the humble dwelling of a family. So the Zenkoji Engi, the temple's origin tale, begins with the story of the first Buddhist image sent to Japan, an, an Amida triad, that was sent from Korea, then Pekche, to Japan or to the Yamato court. According to the story, this image was entrusted to the, to the Soga clan, the famous, one of the famous aristocratic clans of the imperial court. The so, it was entrusted to the Soga clan for experimental worship. Uh, but when a series of disasters befell the kingdom, the emperor and court nobles demanded that the statue be disposed of. The statue was thrown into the Naniwa Canal, where some time later, a common serf by the name of Yoshimitsu happened to be passing by on his way home after performing his corvée labor. The statue down in the river miraculously, miraculously leapt out of the water and onto Yoshimitsu's back commanding him to take it back with him to Nagano and enshrine it in his home. Yoshimitsu dutifully did this, and he and his wife and son are recognized as the founders of the temple. And here we have our image number one here. This, these are the statues of Yoshimitsu in the middle, who, who was commanded by the statue, his wife, Yayoi, on this side, and their son, Yoshitsuke, on the far side. Now, this well, much of the story that I've just talked about, given you, cannot be taken as anything more than legendary, uh, but the most innocent and unimportant event in the narrative may be the one thing that is more or less true. A family acts as caretakers and even as priests for a Buddha image, thereby creating a temple for the community. This aspect of the founding legend of Zenkoji continues to be one of the central features of the temple itself. The statues of the three founders occupy a bay located next to the main altar for the Buddha image, even rivaling it in, in importance. So if you go to Zenkoji, or you know, most temp when you go to a temple, most temples are even the space here, you have the, the altar area of the temple, right? And usually at the center of the altar area, centrally located in the temple space, is the main altar, right? That's your typical layout for any Buddhist temple. Zen Koji is different. 
the main altar area is sent to the left side of the temple. So if you think of the temple cut down the middle, the main altar is to the left. This occupies the right side. So it's kind of divided in half. And this set of statues occupies on the right-hand side the same space that the, the uh, altar for the Amida image occupies on the left-hand side. So these two sets, the, the, the salvational efficacy of the Amida Buddha is given the same weight as the salvational efficacy of this family, actually. And there's more I could you know, talk about that if somebody has a question about that. I don't want to go into that too much at the moment, though. But this remains a very important part of the temple's understanding of itself as deriving from a family. Okay. Uh, another example is the case of Kokawa Dera, another temple, uh, another temple today. Uh, the story behind this is that a local man, a hunter, so this is from the Kokawa Dera Engi, um, again, it's an illustrated scroll of the, the foundation story. And the local man in this tale is a hunter, and this is their, their humble dwelling uh, in the mountain. And one day, I don't know if you can see the picture, it's in the middle very clearly from where you are, but the family is mainly over here. You can see that they have uh, deer skins set out and they're drying meat in front of their home. Uh, but anyway, one day he's out hunting through the forest when he stumbles across a rather impressive uh, statue of the Bodhisattva Kennon. And it's a big statue, you see here. Uh, he finds it simply in the forest, but he takes it home and he enshrines it next to his home. So he builds this, builds this kind of humble structure next to his home. And he begins to worship it. Okay. And soon uh, the entire village starts to worship the uh, image of Kanon with the uh, hunter and his family again acting as the priest's family. So Kokawa Dera, like Zenkoji, starts off as essentially a, uh, a family-based altar, which then becomes a, a larger temple. So now these two stories are somewhat anecdotal in nature, being recorded in the founding legends of these temples. But we do have another more historical example of this type of home-based worship. In fact, the first recorded example of Buddhist worship in Japan is of this type. The story of the Soga clan, who, who I mentioned just a moment ago in the, in the Zenkoji example, is related in one of the earliest Japanese records, the Nihon Shoki, and indicates that at this time, temple spaces were constructed at people's homes. The incident involves the first Buddhist ordinations. So uh, the first ordinations in Japan were of women. There were three nuns, Zenshin, Senzo, and Keizan. And they were supported by the Soga family. Okay, and uh, the, the record from the Nihon Shoki, it's from the year 585. And here's what the record says. It says, uh, the man Soga no Mumako no, no Sukine, so we have a, a long name, but we won't worry about that. Still in accordance with the law of, the, the law of Buddha, received the three nuns and gave them to Hidano Atahe and Tato, so two of his retainers, with orders to provide them with food and clothing. So the Soga uh, patron is providing food and clothing for the three nuns. He erected a Buddhist temple on the east side of his dwelling, okay, in which he enshrined a stone image of Miroku, so uh, Maitreya. He insisted on the three nuns holding a general meeting to, take, to, to partake of a migra feast. At, the, at this time, Tato found a Buddhist relic on the food of abstinence and presented it to the Soga clan. 
In consequence of this, Soga no Mumako, uh, his retainers Hida and Tato, held faith in Buddhism and practiced it unremittingly. Then Soga no Mumako built another Buddhist temple at his house in Ishi, uh, Ishikaha. From this arose the beginnings of Buddhism. So this record then, in, the, in this historical record, the leader of the Soga clan erects Buddhist halls, these are called Butsuden in the original uh, Japanese, uh, at two of his residences and begins to practice Buddhism. This record confirms the, types of the type of practices seen in the more anecdotal tales of Zenkoji and Kokawadera. Someone, a lay person typically, not already practicing Buddhism, finds or obtains a Buddha statue and enshrines it in some fashion within his home. This enshrined image becomes the basis for Buddhist practice by the family and the family's immediate community. If we broaden our scope for a moment to consider the greater context of religious practice in Asia, so generally within Asia, not just Japan, this type of family-based Buddhist practice comes into focus as a standard practice that is absolutely unremarkable. Every other religious tradition in Asia makes use of home altars or home-based shrines. Often the altar of the leading family becomes the shrine or temple for the community, with the lead family becoming the priests. To limit my, my remarks to Japan, this is, for example, the basis for the worship of the sun goddess Amaterasu, right, within Shinto. The deity of the imperial family, so Amaterasu is the, is the goddess for the imperial family in Japan, the deity of the imperial family becomes the center of worship and political organization for aristocratic society, with the emperors acting as priests. Indeed, for much of Shinto, especially the worship of clan deities, this pattern is the norm. In other places, other countries, this pattern is found in the worship of local deities, uh, it can be found in Taoism and in Confucianism. It should not be surprising then that it should, should be carried over into Buddhism as this religion makes its inroads into East Asia. The point here is that temples are often not distinct entities from the homes of the people who founded them. A temple may start out as a home or be part of a home. The creation of temples as parts of homes continues throughout the history of Japan. Many of the famous temples frequented by tourists today are of this type, including the uh, Kofukuji in Nara, so in, uh, in Nara, this is, and then the Byodo-in in Uji, this is Byodo-in. This started off as a uh, part of a family estate owned by the Fujiwara family. Uh, also the famous King Kakuji, which probably many of you have been to if you've been to Japan. Uh, as well as the Ginkakuji, so the, the Golden Pavilion and the Silver Pavilion. These were created by the Ashikaga family as part of their private estates. Okay? Uh, the nature, and these, uh, these date to the Muromachi period. The nature and function of these temples cannot be understood without reference to the families who created them and their purposes in creating, and, and their purposes in creating them. The creation of temples is often not done with the idea of leaving home in mind, but with the problems of maintaining home and family, and even wealth and social position at the forefront. With this new understanding of temples in relation to family life, uh, I, re I turn now to examine a few specific cases of women's lives in relation to their families and their choices to become nuns. So now I'd like to talk a little about, about nuns and their homes and the creation of temple and home life together by women. 
So thus far, we have made two quite radical departures from the way Buddhism is normally presented. We have shifted our view to our viewpoint to look at nuns in a way, not in a new way, as not necessarily cloistered women who leave the world, as in, as in the example of the wine-selling nun. And we have renewed our consideration of temples to think of them not necessarily as places for leaving the world. Now I would, I would like to think about the lives of some of the women who lived in these homes and temples. The nature of this presentation will be somewhat disjointed as records concerning women in general are scarce for the pre-modern period, but I think the combined body of examples will give us a picture of women's and, and men's involvement in temple practice as part of their family lives. So the most well-known examples of family life within temples comes from the Jodo Shinshu, Jodo Shinshu tradition. Since marriage was always allowed for Shinshu clerics, there was never any need to attempt to, to distinguish sharply between a family space and a temple space. The most information we have concerning any individual woman is undoubtedly the in information we have for Eshinni, so the wife of Shinran, right? Yet even that is scanty. She and her daughter Kakushinni were commonly referred to as nuns, yet neither seems to have lived in a nunnery. And I'm not going to go into very much detail today on the lives of Eshini and Kakushini because I'm assuming that many people here are already, already familiar with it, with, with either because they are Jodo Shinshu members or have uh, maybe read uh, Jim Dobbin's book on, Jodo Sh on, on Eshini. Um, so both of them, both Eshini and, um, both, both Eshini and Kakushini lived at home, Eshini at her family estate in Echigo and Kakushini with her father Shinran and later with her husbands. Here we have the examples of women who were clearly recognized within their contemporary society as nuns, the, and the, you know, the, the suffix ni at the end means none, uh, yet remained, at home, remain, remained married and at home. These two are not the only examples we have of this pattern. Muju Ichien, in his Sand and Pebbles, cited earlier, has another story of a monk married to a young nun who lived together in his hermitage. And the nun further has an affair with a young acolyte, one of the, the monk's disciples. So um, Muju also provides a short vignette of a monk who encouraged uh, young novices to marry for their security in old age. Uh, in other literature of the period, we also see hints of this apparent, apparently common practice. Uh, for example, in a book called The Confessions of Lady Nijo. So this is an, an autobiography written by a woman who we refer to date for, we refer to her as Lady Nijo. And in this book, uh, Lady Nijo writes of visiting a nun who was the widow of a lay priest. So we have a, a nun married to a lay priest. And when Lady Nijo is involved in an affair with a high-ranking imperial priest, so we have Lady Nijo is a courtesan, and she uh, is um, one of the courtesans of the emperor at the time, but she also has a number, a number of affairs with other aristocrats and courtiers, and she has one uh, long-term relationship with a man who is a very high-ranking priest. Uh, and he is an Im imperial priest, so he's the abbot of a very famous temple called Ninnaji, and he's also the brother of the emperor, so very high-ranking. Well, this priest falls very much in love with Lady Nijo, and he suggests at one point that, quote, we could don the dark robes of hermits and retire deep within the mountains, never to worry again about this insubstantial world. So he's suggesting that they run off and become a monk and a nun together to live in a hermitage together. Okay. In particular, the idea that nuns might be married to monks or priests 
and that the priest's hermitage might serve as their home seems to have been quite prevalent in the period. This practice seems to have occurred at all levels of society from the relatively humble status of someone like a lay priest married to a woman called a nun, and I would suggest that Shinran's marry, marriage with a Shinni should probably be considered close to this type. Uh, and as well, it extended into the aristocracy as well, for whom ordination was common after retirement, but did not entail giving up the world in its entirety. So, you know, we have many examples of emperors and aristocrats taking tonsure after their retirement. So one of the earliest is the Emperor Shomu, who retired, um, uh, when he retired, he took the tonsure to become a monk, uh, yet he remained married to his consort, the Empress Komyo, who also became a nun. Okay. So this, this was, a, again, a very common practice. And when the aristocrats became uh, monks and nuns, then it, it varied on what they did. Some of them might go spend some time in a monastery or a nunnery, but typically they would come back to palace life at some point or go back and forth. Although this presentation focuses on Japan, I would like to stress that Japan is not the only country where temples were homes and clergy might be married. During the same period in Korea, so let me give you some Korean examples. We can find similar practices. So there's a scholar named Sem Vermeersh who writes on the legal provisions for monks and nuns during the Koryo period of Korean history, which is roughly 900 to about uh, almost 1400, so the, the period of 900 to 1400, again, medieval period. So Vermeersh discusses a law stating, and I quote again, the ban regarding the bequeathing of one's house to make it a temple and of one's spouse to become a nun is renewed. So they're renewing this ban that says a man cannot bequeath his home to make it into a temple, and he cannot bequeath his wife to make her into a nun. Okay? So this seems to have been a, a problem, apparently, okay? of people doing this. So Vermeer speaks of this law in terms of gifting property to a temple, uh, but I believe, uh, let's see, oh, he said, and he says, let's see, Vermeer's comment on this is that this law implies that prominent men often made bequests of property to a temple with the expectation that their wives would become nuns in that temple. So that's what he thinks. But Vermeer speaks of this law in terms of this gifting, but I believe the language of the law, because the language of the law is one of the house, uh, the, uh, bequeathing one's house to make it a temple, to make it a temple, not bequeath the house to a temple, but it's quite clear that Lily to make it a temple. So uh, I, I think some, a little further research should be done on this, that the language of the law may be more significant than what Ver Vermeer is suggesting. It may be possible that the, uh, that the intent was that the house would become itself a temple with the wife remaining there in the capacity of nun, ensuring her a place to live. Furthermore, the marriage of monks in, in Korea seems to have been a commonplace affair. Uh, married monks, uh, was a separate category. There was a category that you find in um, legal documents called, you know, specifically for married monks. Um, and this was, they were, they were recognized by the state, although it's likely that they were of low status because the uh, legal documents we see that mention these married monks will often say, talk about them in terms of whether or not they're eligible for cons conscripted or corvée labor. 
So uh, additionally, uh, the state created special legislation dealing with the sons of monks. So there were so many sons of monks, they had to make legislation to deal with them. <laughs> and specific, specifically, the sons of monks being in, in a position to gain access to certain ranks and offices was a problem. So they were limiting uh, these, the sons of monks uh, to having access to official appointments. And then uh, a document called the Koryosa, uh, which is the history of, Kore of Koryo, makes the claim that more than half of the monks in the elite spectrum of the field, so those holding ranks and offices, that more than half of these monks had wives and children. Okay? So even if we take this to be an exaggeration, the marriage of monks was a large enough issue to merit the attention of the state at this time, which otherwise was relatively lax in setting regulations regarding monastic life and deportment. The purpose of introducing these Korean examples is to demonstrate that the issue of the marriage of Buddhist clergy was not limited to Japan alone, and to suggest that it was probably a far more widespread phenomenon than is generally acknowledged either in Buddhism's view of itself or in academic presentations of Buddhism. If we can now take the married family life as one, as one normative model of Buddhist clerical behavior, what did such a life look like? So let's take an example. Okay, so a portrait, this is a portrait lineage scroll. Okay, so you have a lineage of uh, either monks and nuns or a lineage for the congregation of a temple. Okay, um, this is a, a Jodo Shinshu example. Okay, uh, and this is from the Bukkoji branch of Jodo Shinshu. So portrait lineage, port portrait lineage scrolls from the Bukkoji branch of the Jodo Shin school give us some graphic representations of Buddhist life based on marriage and family. Okay, so in this kind of uh, portrait lineage, you see the men are at the top and the women are at the bottom. And you'll see they're connected by red lines. And uh, these are pairs then. The person at the top is the husband and the person at the bottom is his wife. Okay, and now this is apparently a, a relatively unusual setup because there were other types of portrait lineage scrolls in other schools, but typically they were separated into, into the monks and the nuns. They would be entirely separate scrolls. Okay. And the scholar Endo Hajime has done work on, on these scrolls, and he describes uh, the typical portrait lineage scroll this way. The person depicted at the beginning of each lineage is thought to be the dojo priest, so the, the temple hall priest, and the leader of the local congregation. Appearing with him is a woman, obviously his wife, the bomori. This couple comes at the head of the scroll, and beyond them are shown other members of the congregation or subse subsequent generations, ordinarily in husband <coughs> and wife pairs. What is noteworthy, however, is that the women found in the portrait lineages are not relegated to a separate section, as might be expected in, in other Buddhist lineages. Rather, they are paired with their husbands and, become a, and bear a common status with him relative to the group. The two are thus seen as a unit. Okay, so that's Endo Hajime's comment. And various scholars have studied at least nine different portrait lineage scrolls. One function of the scrolls is that they act as family genealogies that emphasize the importance of the women in the lineage. The women in these lineages are not only the wives of the temple or dojo leader uh, and the mother of his children, but also, le also leaders of the congregation. And speaking of children, this is another one. Uh, some of these lineage scrolls also even show children in them. So if you see over on, this is very damaged. So again, the men are at the top and their wives are at the bottom. 
Uh, but we're here we have over on the far side the two, two children who are also part of the congregation and are included in the lineage scroll, which is quite, you know, quite an unusual feature. Uh, if the husband died before the son was old enough to take over responsibilities for the temple, it was possible for the bolmuri, for the, the wife, to lead the congregation. And the fact that these women were included in these registers tended to ensure that they were regarded as prominent members of the congregation, both by the family and, the by, by, and by the congregation as a whole. For these women, home and temple life were thoroughly integrated. Finally, I would like to present two examples of individual women who also, in this way, thoroughly integrated home and temple life. Okay, so now I'd like to talk, talk about two specific cases of individual women. So, uh, let's see, the first example is the Empress Komyo, alluded to briefly above. The second is the redoubtable woman commonly referred to as Nenesan, the wife of the remarkable warrior and shogun Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Although they lived in very different time periods, one in the Nara period and the other at the end of the Muromachi, their lives illustrate how women throughout Japanese history have combined their homes and families with Buddhist practice. So let me talk about the Empress Komyo first. So she lived uh, from the year 701 to 760, so pretty much spanning most of the Nara period. And she was the granddaughter of an important political figure named Kami Kamatari, who was the first to receive the surname Fujiwara. So if, anybody, if you're familiar at all with Japanese history, you know the name Fujiwara, and this is the origins of the Fujiwara family, essentially. Okay. Uh, during Kamatari's time, during her grandfather's time then, the government had begun to support Buddhism officially, and the Fujiwara family became major patrons, funding the building of private and public temples and sponsoring rites of various sorts for the, the advancement of individuals and the nation. Komyo's father, a man named Fujito, continued to sponsor Buddhism and founded the Fujiwara's clan temple, the famous Kofukuji in Nara. Uh, Komyo's mother, Tachibana no Michiya, held a deep personal faith in Buddhism and greatly influenced her daughter in this respect. Komyo uh, eventually married Emperor Shomu, and during his reign, she was a driving force in the creation of many of the Buddhist structures famous to the period, including the Todaiji in Nara with its great Buddha image, and the system of provincial temples and nunneries, the Kokubunji and Kokubunichi. However, it is not Komyo's state-level activities that are of interest here, but her private endeavors and her impact on the nature of private Buddhism at the imperial court. As a devout Buddhist, Komyo built within her private residence, so inside her own residence uh, at the imperial court, she built a chapel called the Sumin, and one of the activities she conducted here was the copying of sutras. This is an important fact because this seems to have been the beginning of what would become a standard practice for Heian aristocratic women. Komyo may have been the first aristocratic woman, and she was certainly the first empress, to make use of her private quarters as a place for this type of Buddhist practice. Previous to this time, it is known that court women embroidered images of the Buddha, but it is not known that they copied sutras. And this is because, also previous to this time, Sutras, how were sutras copied at this time? Sutra copying was an officially sponsored activity, a state-sponsored activity, and sutra copying was supposed to be done within the halls of monasteries and in special offices called sutra copying offices. So her decision to do this as a private activity within her own home 
is quite you know, a departure from standards of the time. Komyo's sponsoring of sutra copying within, in her own residence thus impacted court Buddhism, and she undertook to help with this, with this typically state-sponsored process. And again, this is also part of her interest in Buddhism generally as a, as a person who is the empress uh, and having a, a, both an interest in Buddhism as well as an interest in promoting the state. So I think she probably, she may have thought of her activities as um, helping with, uh, again, as both private interest and helping with state policies. Additionally, Komyo also constructed within her palace a medicine dispensary for the poor called the Seyakuin. In 759, uh, the chapel and its surrounding buildings, including the dispensary uh, and her entire residence, these were all converted into a nunnery called the Hokeji, and that was according to her wishes. Uh, these facts speak to the profound way in which Komyo vi viewed her private residence as a place of Buddhist practice and compassion for herself and those around her. We also know that in respect to her family, she sponsored Buddhist rites for their well-being during times of illness although it was probably unlikely that these rites would have been performed in her own residence. And in the construction of the national provincial nunneries, it was arranged for all of the members of her family, living and dead, to receive special prayers on their behalf. Uh, without doubt, Komyo's religious concerns extended to her family. The final example I would like to explore then, a last example for today, is the one of Nenesan. So this is a uh, picture of Nenesan. She lived uh, 1547 to 1624, so the last half of the 16th century and into the beginning of the 17th century. And she was the wife of Hideyoshi, and after her husband's death, she became a nun and created one of the most important temples that still thrives in Kyoto today. For Nene, also commonly referred to by her title, Kita no Mandokoro, serious religious interest started late in life. She was Hideyoshi's primary wife but she was unable to bear children. Nevertheless, she was both beautiful and intelligent, and she proved to be an invaluable advisor to Hideyoshi, even concerning military and political affairs. After Hideyoshi died in 1598, Nene remained involved in politics, particularly helping to secure the success of Tokugawa Ieyasu, the next shogun, to the position of shogun. Uh, once this had been achieved, Nene decided to retire from public life take ordination, and devote herself to the rituals involved in ensuring her husband's peaceful repose in the afterlife. In 1603, she was granted the name of Kodain, uh, and um, that's, her, her, uh, that's her ordained name, and she created for herself a residence in the Higashiyama area of Kyoto, having asked for and received the funding from Ieyasu. And this, the temple was completed in 1605, and it's, of course, still there in Kyoto today. This is the Kodaiji. So the name of the temple is taken after her name. Her name was Kodain, and the name of the temple is Kodaiji. It's just to the north of Kiyomizadera, if you uh, are familiar with the area. Uh, Nene lived at this temple until her death in 1624. The temple was her home, and being in, constructed exclusively for herself and her family, it was the burial ground for Hideyoshi and also for Hideyoshi's mother. Uh, and it was also later at the burial ground for uh, one of Hideyoshi's sons, uh, Hideyori, but this is a son by another wife. The temple contains a special building called the Otamaya. This is, uh, this is the, the grounds of the temple. This is looking out onto the, the beautiful garden, and uh, most people are going to this temple today to look at the garden. 
Right. This is the interior of the otamaya, and the, 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 the kanji for otama is rei for spirit. Okay. Uh, and here, Hideyoshi's spirit was enshrined, serving as the focus of Nene's rituals. As a woman of her time, it is likely that Nene's own devotions would have mainly involved recitation of the nembutsu, the most common type of ritual act for the repose of the dead. When Nene died, the Rinzai Zen priest Sanko from the nearby temple Keninji was asked to take over as the temple founder. So even though Nene created and founded this temple, the official founder is the person who came in after she died and the Rinzai uh, Zen monk who, who did that. And the temple today remains within the Rinzai sect. Nene created for herself a temple that was her home, devoted to the religious well-being of her family members. So again, it's this issue of caring for family, of post-mortem care for family members. So uh, I think after uh, Paula's presentation, we have a good understanding of what that involves and how important that is to the, the living uh, members of the family. So uh, that's my last example for today. But in concluding, I would like to think about uh, what is the implication of all these examples uh, for how we think about Buddhism. So we have looked at examples from a variety of materials, from the anecdotal and perhaps legendary to historical and legal documents and works of literature. If one were to be able to spend a great deal of time perusing the assorted genres of writing in Asian languages, one would find scattered throughout them references to married monks and nuns. In addition to the items already cited in this paper, uh, one finds comments that the famous 7th century Korean priest Bonyo was married, that the Japanese Zen monk Ikkyu was married or maintained a relationship with a woman, uh, even that the 4th century translator Kumara Jiva uh, was married and had children. So you know you find these kind of things peppered throughout literature all over the place. In addition to notes such as these naming a specific individual, there are a great many more vague mentions of home, leaving, home living clergy, often no more than a single line stating something like, the lay priest of such and such a place had a wife. When one comes across these minor references scattered as they are through the voluminous writings and records that remain, one tends to have the reaction, well, that's unusual, or to think that this type of thing must be an aberration. Right? You just see them here and there, right? So this, is, this must be a mistake, or this must be just one instance, is you know, the kind of common reaction. However, the fact that these mentions of married or home living, home living <laughs> monks and nuns appear through all these different types of documents and in all periods of time should, I think, inspire us to reconsider our notions of Buddhist clergy. The fact that these records often come with little or no fanfare, no special concern about the status of the clergy being married, should indicate that this was a relatively widespread phenomenon, and this is one area where we should revise how we think about the history of Buddhism. I, for one, would be very happy to see books that introduce Buddhism bring up the issue as an important part of the tradition rather than cling to the easy fallback position that monks and nuns are supposed to be celibate home leavers. A second point concerns how we should think about the categories of monk and nun in the history of Buddhism. How do we define monk and nun in distinction to layperson? Again, the common understanding is that monks and nuns are the fully ordained members of the community who have left home and live separately, typically in a temple, monastery, or nunnery. Certainly, many monks and nuns throughout the history of Buddhism have lived this kind of life. But as in the examples we have seen today, there are also many people who within their society are called monk or nun or priest, but do not fit this description. 
They may not be fully ordained, having taken maybe only three or five or ten precepts. They typically continue to live at home, and they typically remain married or in some way caretakers of homes. In this respect, they differ little from lay people, but nevertheless, they are, recognized and, uh, they are clearly recognized as monks or nuns or, or priests. Particularly in Japan in the medieval period, these types of monks and nuns seem, seem to have been very numerous. The majority of monks called hijiri and local preachers, often called nyudo, which is typically translated as lay priest, seems to have been this type of clergy. For women, it was very common for those of the upper social strata to become stay-at-home stay nuns. That's a, a word I like these days, stay-at-home <laughs> nuns. <laughs> to, to become stay-at-home nuns at some point in their lives, typically after the death of a husband or when one's husband or lord retired. Likewise, for men, this was a common pattern. When a man retired or when his lord uh, re retired or died, it was common, if not expected, that he would take orders. And again, if you, were to, if you read the, the Confessions of Lady Nijo, this is a fantastic book for um, examples of what Buddhist life was really like in medieval Japan for a regular person. These are aristocrats, but we can think of them as regular people, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, when her father, for example, when her father her father was um, uh, in the service of the emperor Gosaga, and when Gosaga passes away, her father is distraught, you know, because he, he had loved the emperor so much, and he says, I, I want to become a monk and live out my days doing services for, you know, showing my devotion to the, reti to the, the deceased emperor. But the, the new emperor, his son Gofukaksa, says, no, no, we need you to stay in, in politics. You can't become a nun. But he keeps petitioning and petitioning, can't I become a monk? so I can do this for my previous lord. And eventually he's granted that. And Lady Nijo also, she's in the f service of the Emperor Gofukaksa as, his con as one of his uh, co uh, consorts, or not in a consort, uh, one of his ladies in attendance, we should say. <laughs> and when he retires, she also retires and becomes a nun, essentially. Uh, in medieval Japan, uh, as Buddhism became more prominent and visible at all levels of society, these kinds of monks and nuns, the wandering hijri, the local preachers, older nuns at home, and uh, monks living in small provincial temples who had women caretakers living with them, these may have formed the common image of who and what monks and nuns were. Finally, we may even need to revamp our notion of what a temple is. Is a temple sometimes a home, or a home sometimes a temple? We have seen in our examples that some temples have started out as a home or as part of a private dwelling or compound. The place of worship and religious practice is, that, is thus not necessarily distinct from the home. And we should remember that especially in Asia, religious practice has always been a part of home life. With an altar or chapel at home, or a temple as one's home, as in the case of Nene, temple life, religious practice, and home life become seamlessly fused. Religious practice becomes a way to express one's concern and commitment to one's family, and to do tasks that work toward their benefit. In particular, over time, the tasks and benefits that are deemed especially important for securing the continued uh, peace and prosperity of the family are seen to reside in the care of deceased family members. Although our perspective today from a vantage point of modern America may not immediately recognize someone like Nene living alone in her temple, seeing to the needs of her deceased husband and mother-in-law as involved in family life, her own mind and in, in her own mind and in the eyes of those around her in 17th century Japan, she created the, 
that temple and performed those, tax, those acts of religious devotion for her family. And I wrote this some time ago, but having had Paula's presentation, we can now all understand that, right? <laughs> Uh, in this way, the home can be a temple, and a temple can be a place for the family. So that is the end of my official presentation. But you know, in concluding, I would like to uh, ask Paula, actually, if at some point during the day, maybe not during this discussion now, but maybe in our afternoon discussion, if Paula might be able to give us some more comments on this issue of uh, the funeral practice uh, and its importance in, in the Japanese home. And this is one area that I thought about myself, too, as is this an area that, that Asian Buddhism will have an impact on American Buddhism? And Alan before was saying he suspects, suspects not. And that's been my, not, my not, I haven't suspected either way, but that's been one of my questions for American Buddhism. Does the concern for the deceased family members that we see in much of Asian Buddhism have any weight in America at all, or, you know, what, or will it eventually have some weight? Is that one area where Buddhism will change um, American ways of thinking and perhaps help us to integrate our families in different ways? So I don't know, that's a, a question for, maybe Paula might have some comments for us on that, or maybe you all have some comments about that as well. And then I would also add, like to ask the audience, again, for later in our afternoon discussion, uh, for your thoughts and comments on the issue of this perhaps vague distinction between home and temple life. In particular, I'm wondering if for you, you know, I think, I suppose many of you may have your own home altars or home temple spaces. And um, I think that, you know, as again, as uh, Alan mentioned, uh, Buddhas of the past are not different from the Buddhas of today. That, you know, there may be more, con 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 uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, Continuity, <laughs> continuity between what we see in these Japanese examples and what we find in American Buddhist practice even today. So I, I would be interested in hearing uh, about your home altars or home temple and, and home life experience in that way. So again, thank you for your attention today and uh, I look forward to Jenny's comments.